You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Marco, a little while ago, you posted a picture of a white wild turkey that was walking past your home there in Quebec. Have you seen it? Yeah, again? there's two. There's two oh, in wow. the group. Uh, we, I saw, I could see 61 turkeys from my, from what I'm talking about five <laughs> or six days ago. Nice. And I'm pretty sure there's at least two. Uh, I initially thought they were white, but it turns out it's something called the smoke phase. And apparently yep. one to 2% of turkeys are that color. They're not quite white. They're kind of grayish. Uh, like the black is there, but the brown is gone sort of whitish. And, uh, you know, initially when I saw it, I thought, what is this, domestic turkey? But I looked up and no, it's a color phase, just like black bears are color phases. And uh, yeah, I never seen one before, but there is at least two in this bunch. You know, I mean, of course, I've seen 61. I yeah, I've no done some research. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I did some digging and like trying to, you know, learn about that a, a while ago. And so those smoke phase ones, like with the multi kind of colors on it, like you're talking about, is supposed to be a genetic disorder called mm -hmm. leukism, which affects the pigment cells, but it affects certain pigment cells. So like the, the genetic disorder that those birds had was knocking the color out of like the browns, but it wasn't affecting the pigment cells that made mm -hmm. black. Yeah. And so the, the browns went to this kind of like, like sort of buff color not, yeah, it's almost white. Pure white, and then the yeah. black bars. Yeah, and then so that gives them whatever the people say the smoke phase. Yeah. So uh, that's supposed to be what um, what that one is. Those, well, whatever they call them, those those like pinto or palomino whitetails that are f the Seneca deer that are in New York State, the very mm -hmm. famous ones that are like blotchy, the white, and then the normal white. That they're supposed to be affected by that leukistic disorder as well so huh no that's uh that's pretty cool i saw a white turkey well curtis and i both saw a white turkey earlier this year here we're driving back from a deer hunter an elk hunter something like that and it was the second day in a row that i saw it but it was pure white and when i first saw it i thought there was a bunch of turkeys hanging out with a snow goose in the field so huh. um Cool. Well, that's uh, that's neat that you got some pictures of it too. So it's not like the Sasquatch thing where nobody believes you. It's all white turkey. <laughs> um, yeah. So we're gonna get into talking about uh, white white animals. They're not leukistic. They're white by their natural color, living in the mountains. So, hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, your co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, British Columbia. They're a fully stocked parts and service center for all makes and models of vehicles. They got seven service bays and a team of licensed technicians. They're well known for their off-road outfitted Tacoma 4x4s. You can buy tires for all makes and models of vehicles, including off-road and winter tires. They are a huge supporter of Ducks Unlimited Canada, and they're also a supporter of us. So when you support their business, you can uh, you can feel like you are uh, supporting conservation efforts across Canada. So big thanks to Alpine Toyota for being the Hunter Conservationist podcast title sponsor. Thanks, guys. 
Yeah, thank you. So it's uh, almost a year to the date, Marco, to the to the day we did the Sheet Podcast. I think it was episode 37. So uh, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. We're uh, so so we, yeah. So Dr. Marco Festa Bianchet from the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec, uh, professor and wildlife researcher from mountain sheep to mountain goats to kangaroos. <laughs> we kind of see everything coming from Marco on social media. And we're also joined by well, uh, Jesse Zeman. Thanks. How's it going, Jesse? Good, good. Jesse's a director of Fish and Wildlife Restoration with the BC Wildlife Federation. So uh, welcome. We're getting together to talk all things mountain goats. So when it comes to mountain goats, do you, th so, I mean, in Canada, it's, it's a Western thing, but in Alberta, BC, Yukon, Northwest Territories, a bet. Do you guys think they're kind of like the, 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 the forgotten ungulate species in this country? Like they don't seem to get the airtime that others do. Well, think, hopefully Marco? that has changed, uh, you know, in the last uh, in the last few years. Certainly, when I started a long-term mountain goat research at Courage back in the late '80s, uh, they were by far the North American ungulate that we knew the least about. And uh, yeah, it, it is in this kind of strange position where, I mean, they're beautiful animals, you know, they're incredibly different Absolutely. from everything else but they don't seem to have the same sort of oh hunting prestige that's associated with pecan sheep uh you know that maybe because the horns are always about the same uh, there isn't that much of a you know opportunity to say mine is bigger than yours type of thing um and the distribution is kind of you know there's not a whole lot of mountain goats outside british columbia maybe alaska so maybe that's uh, that's why. But you're you're right. Uh, it's a lot of people don't seem to realize that this fantastic animal out there. Um, I mean, like I said, I hope it's changed a little bit in the last couple of decades. But compared to most other North America species, uh, you know, other than maybe muskox, it's probably the least known. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good one. Yeah, you don't don't hear a lot of conversations about muskox either. Jesse, what do you think? Do you think uh, mountain goats uh, kind of yeah, looking take the at the seat? harvest rate in BC, uh, I think we do harvest more uh, goats than sheep. I would imagine. Um, I'm not sure if uh, in the world of economists we call it scarcity value, but with the sheep thing, that's definitely real, um, especially with stone sheep. And of course, in BC, we have I'm not sure probably 50% of what what is out there in North America. And I think the Yukon has a little, it has some sort of the Northwest territories. And then of course in Alaska, um, but yeah, they have a different, uh, allure, I guess, for hunters for sure. And mountain goats are definitely also, you know, sheep, sheep can live in the, in the really scary stuff. Um, but mountain goats love the scary stuff. And so I think that there's a different, it presents a different kind of, um, hunt than a sheep hunt as well.
Yeah, and and this kind of a big part of where they inhabit, like, you know, put hunting aside, other than the few places where there's licks, like along the Trans-Canada Highway in our national parks, like, I don't think the average Canadian or tourist probably sees or interfaces with a mountain goat, um, even if they spend a lot of time in the outdoors, like they might even like say a moose, you know, or a black bear or something like that. I, I imagine the average, the average Canadian that spends time in the outdoors probably would be pretty taken back when they had a chance to see a mountain goat because they don't run across the highway very, yeah, very um, often Yeah, they're I think in this uh, country. Well, people call them white sheep. We have some in the South Okanagan uh, between Peachland and Summerland. And you can see them from the highway if you're paying attention. And then there's a few other spots where we've been putting salt licks off the highway to keep people from running the goats over because they just kind of, they're like caribou in the spring. They just kind of seem to congregate on the highways in a few select spots. And uh, that doesn't work out well for goats. But um, I agree, they don't have the same kind of distribution. And of course, uh, mountain goats, again, <laughs> live in really crazy uh, places. And people don't like to live in those kind of places. People like to live close to golf courses and near winter range, which I think puts them in sheep's path far more than in goat's paths, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe maybe today we'll hope open um, spread some knowledge a little bit more about uh, mountain goats for, for folks, especially the people that listen that, you know, aren't hunters and stuff that are just following along from a conservation perspective. Um, if you guys kind of had to, you know, sort of in an elevator pitch, what, what do you think about mountain goats, um, their ecology, their biology, like we talked about where they live, you know, that would be one they inhabit. Their escape terrain is some probably the roughest places and their, and their, um, their kid areas, like where the nannies go to give birth in the spring are probably like the most rugged, you know, places in North America, you know, mountain rise. But so outside of that biology, ecology, um, any, anything about them that you think, what, what makes mountain goats unique, different, challenging in the spectrum of conservation, everything from impacts from development through to hunting? Marco, what do you think are some of the, the key things about goats that maybe that are different? Oh, they're, they're different. They're, there's nothing like them. Um, I mean, first of all, the way they look like. Nothing else looks <laughs> like a mountain goat. Maybe Japanese Sarau, but they're so much smaller. They don't have that, you know, double hump. Uh, I mean, the thing that always strikes me about, you know, the physical appearance of goats is uh, the huge feet and also... If you look at it from the side, this very deep chest, you know, looks like a massive, robust animal. Then if you look at it from the front, it looks so skinny. And that is clearly an animal <laughs> yeah. that's adapted to go <laughs> along very, very narrow ledges and not, you know, and not lose its equilibrium. It's just so much more, there's so much appropriately named mountain. Goat, well, they're not goats, so that's not quite as appropriate, but they're definitely, uh, a very strongly mountain adapted uh, species. Uh, in terms of the biology, well, their behavior, they're, you know, one of the most aggressive ungulates 
that we know of. Uh, they're nasty to each other. They can mm. be nasty to predators. I mean, students I've seen, we've seen them defend their kids successfully against uh, wolves. I've seen a mountain goat chase a wolverine. And, uh, you know, we catch a sheep in a trap, you go in and grab it by the horns and wrestle it down, put a mask on his face and tie the legs together. You do that to a mountain, well, you don't do that to a mountain goat because it will probably kill you, or at least it will try. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you open this little little door to put in the jab stick, and if you just approach your face too close, it'll try to stab your face. So uh, they got quite a character to them. And in terms of the biology, this really strikes me as an animal that evolved with very, very little mortality on adults. Uh, they have a very late age of first reproduction. They have a much slower reproductive rate than, say, mountain sheep. And that's what makes them so susceptible to overharvest. They're also, they also have just no tolerance, again, compared to mountain sheep for uh, disturbance. Uh, so they will react to helicopters that are over a kilometer away. Uh, they really don't like all-terrain vehicles. They just take a lot longer to habituate to people in protected areas. And then when they get habituated, you know, they'll harass tourists because they like to lick their urine because there's salt in it. And, uh, you know, it's an ongoing concern in several protected areas, mostly in the States, not so much in Canada, but once goats do get habituated, well, then, you know, their nasty predisposition can make them, uh, well, not an easy animal to deal with. As you probably all know, there has been one fatality and, uh, you know, you don't want to get stabbed by a mountain goat. Those horns are not made for display. They're made to kill you. So, yeah, they're definitely, yeah. They're, they're just, there's nothing like a mountain goat. You know, you can, you know, bacon sheep and sheep, you can find other species. Well, you know, it's a sheep up in the mountain. There's buffalo in Europe or galleys in Asia. But I've seen Sarau in Japan and, of course, Shamoy in Europe, and mountain goats are just something else. <laughs> I remember what you were saying about kind of their their disposition. They're just sort of, I don't know, they just always seem to be angry. Um, and, and when you watch them, even in, in groups, you go like, oh, those are nannies and kids, like a nursery herd. So you're, you know, you think about like singing songs and the old ones looking after the little ones and stuff. But it's like they might be in these. I've seen them in groups of like up to 30. And it's like, but they all have a personal space. And, and if one comes too close to the other, even in these, these groups that they're supposedly probably in for, for protection from predators, like somebody gets a horn and like there's always fur flying, goats walking around with big globs of fur stuck on their horns. And I remember one time in the springtime, there was, I saw a bunch at a, at a sulfur lick and this little newborn kid come bounding down the hill like you'd see on the videos or whatever and it was all happy and playful and it stopped by this nanny and looked up um it wasn't its mom and it, and it kind of like if it was a cartoon the little nanny would have or the little kid would have said hi how are you and the nanny looked down at it and just head slammed this thing and not flattened it down it's just like you're not mine get lost and and just like ruthless like just piled around this little <laughs> little thing so Oh man! Um, yeah, they have a, they yeah. Have you a must very, get danger pay when you're doing research on those. <laughs> they have a very, very strong dominance hierarchy, and I've had, you know, a number of students who have looked into this, and uh, 
especially when they're lying down and you see a dominant one that wants to take somebody else's spot. So they'll go and usually they don't need to have contact because you very rarely see contact because they know they're so dangerous to each other that when they see a dominant individual coming, they just get out of there. So the one that got displaced gets up and he looks around at the other goats lying down, targets another subordinate individual and does the same. <laughs> and we've seen this up to seven times in a row until the seventh goat is, you know, a yearling and he kind of, he or she gets up and kind of goes, oh shit, and just goes and look for another place to lie down. But that's great for establishing dominance, Harry, right? because there you got seven, you know, seven is the record, but you can easily get four or five interaction where you can say, okay, this one's dominant to that one, that one's dominant to that one. And uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's anthropomorphic, huh. but you, you could define it as a fairly nasty predisposition. It's like they invented social media before humans. Maybe that's, that's the thing. They're just not nice to each other. <laughs> Jesse, do you have anything to add to that kind of from, from your experiences and knowledge? Like what, what kind of makes uh, mountain goats unique? Anything about them like, well, I, from I a think management it's the, the places they live. Um, like Marco said, sheep are fairly adaptable. Um, they're kind of... Uh, you know, they're a bit dramatic around the world of disease and kind of catching bugs and they seem to tip over really easily where goats kind of live in these places that, you know, nothing else really lives and they live there all year round and it's a tough existence. So, um, yeah, I think that's what's really neat about them is they're kind of, a, you know, in BC we have elk that live near people and deer that live near people and moose that live near people and sheep that live near people, but but goats just don't really do that well. And so to me, they're kind of another, you know, another sign of nature or what's out there in BC. Um, and definitely the habituation pieces is, is, uh, is pretty interesting because we do have a few provincial parks now that have them. And I call them, I call them politically incorrectly piss lickers, but it's, it's the same issue. And now they're, you know, we've got them in Valhalla and also in uh, cathedrals too. <laughs> And um, they can be really hard on people, for sure. And uh, really interesting to watch. We've got in behind Kelowna and Okanagan Mountain Park, we've got one group that used to be typically 20 to 25 nannies and kids that kind of occupied one hillside. And same thing, you just sit there and watch the dynamics. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's full on. There are no friends in that world, it seems like. And there's always uh, a lady who is the boss and everybody else kind of follows their, their place in line. So... Yeah, I would say just really, really neat animals, I think, to watch and to experience. And, you know, you got to get up to where they live to kind of participate and watch that. And, yeah, they they take up a space, I feel like, in BC that, that nothing else really does, right? So, you know, you get to where the sheep are, and that's pretty easy. And then if you want to get to where the goats are, typically now you, you really have to have to work at it. So pretty neat animal. Well, I, th I think it was, uh, it was just recently, I think it was the podcast with, uh, with Dr. Lee Foote that we did, but we were talking about goats cause we had the RMGA was a, uh, a sponsor of a couple episodes, but, but we came to the conclusion that basically like every single goat in North America is probably on public land. There's probably no private yeah, land right. goats. 
because of where they live. Like people don't have private property at the top of a friggin' mountain. Like it's, yeah, I, th- I, I think I, that was with him. I think that was. Yeah, no, actually, it was. Yeah, I, I do do remember that conversation. That it yeah, is. Yeah, so it's when a it purely comes purely public land animal. Yeah. yeah, so when we think about from a North America perspective, anyways, like you know, the tr- the the land conservation organizations that will step in and get um, you know secure land uh, in the valley bottoms, agriculture land from you know. F- you know that might get developed uh, maybe even some mid slope or a bit of backcountry stuff but yeah like like we were saying we're probably pretty certain that north american wide mountain goats probably don't um exist you know in any any significant capacity on private land where there's any opportunity for for conservation you know that's not managed by the province territory or state so yeah that's that's kind of a neat point mm-hmm. um so let's kind of let's take a snapshot sort of what your guys's um state of knowledge is on the state of mountain goats um if you just kind of want to take like a north american a british columbia i know there's some stuff going on in alberta on the east slope of the rockies it's not looking good for mountain goats i kind of what is what is your guys's understanding kind of like the state of mountain goats um at any one of those level provincial national uh, I, I was going to defer that the, Jesse Yeah so what just you, to, to prep to prep for hearing? this podcast I did go through I don't that know one? probably about 30 or something inventory reports today um I think in BC I feel like the big challenge we definitely we definitely have some spots um, and we can get into the hunting and the harvest side. We definitely have some spots where we need to work on the hunting side. But I think broadly, I mean, the trend, especially in the interior is downward, right? Things are declining. And I think a lot of it, it's really interesting. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't always come up, but uh, certainly in the central interior, I think fire played a really big role in population kind of trajectory. And when we look in the central interior in the Okanagan or kind of in the West Kootenays, um, you see these long-term declines and slides for goat populations that have even, you know, that haven't been hunted for decades and decades and decades, and they just continue to dwindle. And then, you know, in some cases we have a spark or a fire that lights up and, you know, Okanagan Mountain Park's a great example where they'd go out and see four or five goats and we have a fire and within 10 years we're you know upwards past 80 goats 80 to 100 goats and certainly you know we talk about this in the world of elk and the world of mule deer and the world of sheep um, but where you see it even in the wet belt and the wet west kootenays when there's a fire you definitely see goats kind of come down slope and use that especially in the winter and the spring and i think a lot of that you know, those are stand replacing fires. Those are places where they don't have frequent fires, but when there is fire, they really seem to use it. So, I mean, it seems like in BC overall, I mean, it's like everything else, um, whether it's mule deer or elk or bighorn sheep, uh, goats are definitely in decline. And it seems like it's actually even more recent um, than some of those other species. But um, I feel like fire and fire suppression really plays a big role in, in the BC context. And I will defer everything else to Marco because I don't know about it 
but it's but it's definitely it's, <laughs> it's um, a Marco. You, yeah. know, you see these blips, and and I'm and I've had I, I bought Marco's book probably about 15 years ago, and I still don't have it. I got to get it signed still. Um, but you definitely you definitely see blips when we have fires. You definitely see populations really take off, and I mean it's it's been you know watching things happen in Okanagan Mountain Park where you go from literally just about no goats, a handful of goats, and you're upwards of 80 in just over i mean less than a decade so double digit population you know growth it's pretty amazing to see that and of course you guys live in the east kootenai so you have a whole bunch of places that have slid pretty significantly even in the last five to six years right um so so i mean that's kind of a landscape issue and that's not just goats and it's not just hunting um i mean that's what we're seeing and experiencing in a lot of bc right now for wildlife broadly Broadly, yeah. I think uh, when I was looking at some of the BC stuff, um, the Kootenai region and the Skeena region are the two big areas where most of the mountain goat harvesting takes place. And in the Kootenai region, um, of the 26 goat survey units um, that are inside the population units that they'll go out and sort of systematically count, it was like 60% of them that the go populations have been declining since I think it was 2015. So, um, yeah. And the last one on fire before we turn this over to, to, to Marco is I recently read a paper on fire and mountain goats that seemed to suggest the mountain goats in the coastal ecosystems in British Columbia don't like fire. When there was fires, they kind of said, screw it. And they didn't spend as much time in the burnt areas. And they, they, they just, like it was avoidance. So, um, Marco, correct everything that Jesse and I just said. No, I... To right, right, the ship. <laughs> my experience with mountain goats is essentially in alpine tundra. And most mm. mountain goats in North America, that's where they live. So I'm aware of the Okanagan Mountain Park and, you know, I worked on sheep in that area. And the first time I saw that place, I kind of went, there's goats there. But again, it's one of those species that the habitat can vary quite a bit over its range. So you mentioned the coastal, essentially rainforest. And so in coastal Alaska, they're essentially in the forest. And there, there is increasing concern with the effects of climate change. And you're right, it looks like they seem to like mature forests. I know very little about those goats, but obviously very, very different from the goats I'm used to in sort of open alpine tundra. Uh, I agree there is some evidence for places in part of the distribution that, yeah, fires create new habitat and uh, improves the, the population growth. One of the things that has always struck me about mountain goats and, you know, goes back to this idea that goats are different. In places where they're native, we now know that we made some big mistakes in the past by thinking that these animals were sheep or deer. So thinking, you know, we can probably take 10 or 15% and that's gonna be okay. Well, no, if you go over about 3%, that's, you know, that's about as much as they can take. They're almost like, you know, like grizzly bears. But in places where they've been introduced, where they shouldn't be, Olympics National Park, uh, several of the states, they breed like rabbits. They reproduce when they're two, they twin, they have a growth rate, you know, population growth rate is way above mountain sheep, uh, and they will tolerate, you know, a 15% harvest rate. 
And there's some really neat work coming out of Montana where within the same state, they got introduced a native herd. And it's like if it was two different species, the native herds, you go for wow. a 2% harvest, numbers go down. They introduced herds, you know, they're almost like white-tailed deer. Uh, <laughs> we are getting close to 30 years of monitoring of uh, mountain goats at Courage. We've had two cases of twinning. Uh, in some of these places in Colorado, you know, Colorado is probably outside their native range. Uh, Mount Evans and places like that, uh, they regularly, you know, like I said, started producing a two and twin uh, fairly frequently. What we see at Courage is uh, age of premium, you know, when the goat, when the female starts producing kids, is typically four, very often five or older. Uh, and they skip about one out of three years. They will just not reproduce. So very, very low uh, reproductive rate. So it's one of those things that, you know, I can tell you about what we learned at Courage uh, in an alpine tundra type of setting. So, and so it, Courage is Alberta, right? Courage is Alberta. That, that's your research site in it's, the Rockies. Uh, yeah, it's just southern. north of the Wilmore Wilderness area. It's not too far from, okay. say, the Narroway area in British Columbia. Uh, uh, in fact, we can see British Columbia from uh, from Core Edge, but it's kind of okay. Yeah, and there's just always just been this oriented to yeah. No, that that's a good point. It's north for Jasper National Park, so uh, oh, okay. And uh, if you know where Grand Cache is, uh, it's not far from Grand Cache. Grand Cache is sort of our base when we're at um, Core Edge. And uh, in Alberta, there's been a major decline, you know, going back to the 50s and 60s. And initially, what people say was overhunting, whether it really was or not, I don't know. But I know, uh, you know, Sheep River area in uh, just west of Calgary, where I used to work on Bacon Sheep, uh, in the 50s, there was a mountain goat hunting season. The goats are gone. They trying to put them back. So we see the odd one, but essentially was locally extinct. And that's been the story in many places in, uh, in Alberta. But there's also places where they haven't been hunted for decades and they're really not doing uh, not doing very well whether it's some kind of habitat improvement such as fires would potentially help the situation it probably varies on where they are of course the coming big worry is uh, climate change because we're seeing mm. uh, negative effects uh, on uh, things like chamois chamois the alps are getting smaller uh, because of warming in the mountains that's going on at a much higher rate than elsewhere and when you start seeing things like you saw in British Columbia this year, uh, you know, temperatures in the high 30s, uh, you start wondering, you know, this almost, I don't know if it would kill them directly, but it's not what they, uh, you know, what they evolve with. And uh, this is probably an animal that when the temperature gets above 20, 22 degrees, starts feeling hot. And you're dealing with 36. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things that it's a worry, but I can't point to any data. So it's showing that, you know, it that's the cause of the problem. But like Jesse was saying, it's just an animal you have to be very, very careful about because it, it you, mm. any kind of light, you know, harvest over a very small percentage. Then there's things that also make the situation worse. First of all, males and females are not very easy to distinguish. And something that is very, very obvious in British Columbia, the proportion of females in the harvest just keeps going down as hunters are getting better educated and pay more attention. And, uh, you know, I have a student who's been looking at the hunting record from BC and clearly the proportion of bills in the harvest just going up and up and that that's very good. 
but also they're extremely difficult to manage because they're not often they're in fairly small populations so you may have a hunting unit and you establish a quota but they may all come up from the one small accessible subpopulation we, we had this in alberta uh maybe 20 years ago 15 20 years ago they reopened the season in southern alberta just east of Cal- west of calgary and there was this area where there were maybe a couple of under goats and they said okay you know we can probably take you know let's assume hunting success rate is going to be 50 percent. let's give ourselves a permit they kill, they'll kill three or four three or four goats out of you know over 150 no problem so seven people got drawn there's one small population you can see from the highway. Well, guess what happened? All seven went up and shot a goat on the mountain and depopulated a small group. And then they shut the season. Well, the next year there was one permit and then that was it. So that's another issue with goats that you really have to manage them at a very local level. Uh, because even though they disperse, well, at least the male, they disperse more than sheep. Um, accessibility is very, very variable. Um, and they tend to be in these small populations where you know, as wisely the management strategy in BC is that I think, you know, the, the harvest rate depends on the estimated population size. So I think if it's less than 50, there's no hunting. And if it's less than 100, they're much more careful than if it's a bigger population. Of course, many of the big population, like you said, up in the Skeen and the Peace Country, they're a lot less accessible than the ones for south. Yeah, I think that's that's yeah the there yeah yeah, i think what um... what marco is saying and this is this what's what strikes me when you go through all the inventory data is you have these goat populations that some of them you know we harvest relatively intensively and the goat population is stable or increases um and then we have other populations that we don't harvest and they just tank in isolation of hunting and so and then on top of that i think what what marco is saying is they're really poor colonizers. So if you go in and you, you know, overhunt a population, it seems to take a really, 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 really long time for them to rebuild, um, which makes it really hard. In the, in, the isol- in, in the absence of good inventory, regular inventory, it's really hard to manage goats because you can have, you know, relatively no hunting or like, you know, there's some stuff in the Kootenays where the harvest rate is well less than 1%. And we go out 10 or 15 years later because we assume the harvest rate's been really low and we go and we find no goats, right? Whereas we have other populations that we're harvesting, you know, at much higher harvest rates. We go, okay, we got to go out and monitor these and check in on them. And they're doing relatively well. So it's, they're really, they're strange in that sense. There's, it's not intuitive. You know, what you would think you would find at a local level isn't always what you'd, what you find. It's really bizarre. Huh, that's crazy. Um, very uh, kind of opposite to all, all, some of the other ungulates, as far as you know what you're saying about 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 hunting pressure. Now, so so this is this is obviously going to come in into people's mind hearing that. So a go population, not a lot of hunting pressure, and it declines. So immediately people are thinking increased predator populations well, that, that in the can area be. they're they're again i can tell you what's been our experience with one population but the story i'm going to give you about mountain goats at courage is almost identical to what we've seen with bighorn sheep at sheep river 
Ram Mountain to place in Alberta and at the National Paiso Range in Montana. And it has to do with specialist cougars. So we've had predation by wolves, by grizzly bears. It's amazing how good grizzly bears are catching mountain goats. And there's always been that background level. You know, some of the mortality comes from that predation, but you know, wolves are going after deer and moose and caribou. They allocate to take a goat and grizzly bears try, but you know, their impact's not huge. All these places have cougars, and cougars, like any other self-respecting cougar, they go after cervids. They go after deer, elk, uh, young moose. What we've seen in multiple occasions now is one cat that clues in on mountain goats or on sheep, and they can really cause a decline in the population. And it's got nothing to do with density dependence, got nothing to do with how many cougars you have, uh, as far as we know, it's got not much to do with alternative prey, although some editors from the state suggest otherwise. It's just one individual that figures out, these animals always walk by here. All I have to do is sit here and the goats will come by. <laughs> and they're out in the open, they're easy to see, I can hide in the rocks. So uh, we had five years of intense cougar predation at Courage, and we went from 160 animals to about 38. And uh, in addition to wow, the ones that were being taken by the cat, and again, I know this is controversial, but we have pretty strong evidence, again, not just from mountain goats, but with sheep, what people refer to as indirect effect. Uh, imagine you go in a bad neighbor of your town. I'm sure your town doesn't have any bad neighbors, but neighborhoods, but suppose there was one. You'd probably be tense, you'd be scared, you may not be too willing to do through your normal behavior. So there is a very neat study uh, that came out of a graduate student of uh, Steve Cote uh, uh, from Courage, who showed that when you have these years of high, very intense cougar predation, uh, they really cut down on reproduction. So this was proposed for wolf wolves and elk in Yellowstone. And now people have looked at the data from Yellowstone and saying, yeah, that's probably not working. But your average Yellowstone elk meets a war, excuse me, your average Yellowstone elk meets a wolf maybe every two weeks. Goats and sheep are gregarious. And when numbers go down, and we've seen this at Courage, we've seen this at Ramountain, Ramountain is big on sheep, but in many ways are similar. A lot of time, all your nursery goats are all together in one group. So every time that cougar goes after trying to get one, it scares the shit out of everyone. And we don't know what the success rate of cougars is, like how often do they have to attack before they kill one. But if you take what's available from African lions, let's say they're successful once out of three attacks. And they kill a goat every 10 days. That means on average, every three days, the bunch of goats gets a cougar running at them. And we've had one year, we had 24 or 26 reproductive age nannies, zero kids. Like we had one year with no reproduction at all. And uh, we can pick up a higher level of stress hormones in the feces. And uh, again, these indirect effects that some people are beginning to doubt whether they're important, the key is how often does the animal get stressed. And if you have a specialist cougar that's going after deer or sheep, it may well be, it may well be that they get an attack every two or three days. And uh, we're not only seeing less reproduction, but also the lambs are smaller. Uh, 
And you can imagine, you know, if the female is getting something that wants to kill it and it's seed every two or three days, well, it's probably going to allocate whatever resources she has to herself rather than putting something to milk and, and, and reproduction. So in addition to the ones that are getting killed, you have this lower recruitment rate. But as far as I can tell, it's an individual specialist. And from what we've seen is, is cougars, is, is, is cats. And, and then it suddenly stops because the one cat died because um, somebody shot it or it died, okay. whatever. So it makes it extremely difficult to deal with the whole predation issue because it's not like, you know, walls and caribou. Uh, okay, we shoot 80% of the walls for five or six years. We see an increase in recruitment. You can go out to a sheep or a mountain goat area and kill all the cougars you want. Most of the cougars were not touching the goats. They're, you know, hunting deer, uh, elk, uh, other things. So it really seems to be an individual because it's a completely different hunting strategy from what the cougar usually uses. You know, your cougar is usually in the forest and he ambushes deer. Out in the open, well, your average. Most cougars in North America, where they evolved, they never seen a sheep or a goat because they're deer hunters. But, and again, it's not just my own studies, there's substantial evidence from other herds in the States that you get somehow the cat learns, hey, these animals are kind of stupid, you know, I just wait here and they show up. Because <laughs> uh, the other thing that you see, and not so much with the goats, but with the sheep, it works down the age structure. So the first year of high cougar predation, all your older ewes disappear. Well, those are the ones that are leading, you know, typically when sheep move, the lead ewe is an older individual. Mm. Well, that's the one that gets nailed. And then the next year, well, it kind of works its way down the, the age structure. So, yes, predation can be, but it clearly not the whole, you know, it's clearly not the whole, uh, the whole answer, but it, 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 can be a way yeah that, no for sure you know it's the same as hunting yep. you know the small the small isolated population mm -hmm. if you have a specialist predator that takes 15 20 percent of the population every year well it doesn't take very long yeah yeah and to mountain goats if they're sensitive to that to that harvest rate it doesn't matter whether it's humans or a cat um if it exceeds three percent it's has the potential of affecting their population so I remember uh, here in the East Kootenai years ago, they collared some some cougars as part of a study, and these cats would be in the in the middle of the winter time, January February. They would be in the valley bottom, uh, zipping around, probably looking for for deer and elk. And then the next day, in the middle of February, these things were in the top of the Selkirk Mountain or the Purcell Mountain ranges up there looking for goats and and they were they were making these these long treks through the big snow belt back and forth but but it was it was like you were saying it was like it was like one or two cats that were just highly specialized and they would um, make these runs up into the high country to get a goat if they weren't successful then they probably came back down and you know grabbed a deer or something like that to tie them over for the next next uh, trip up into into goat country so huh. Um, Marco, you sent me, you sent me a paper, um, a little bit. I, I want to get you to dive into that kind of uh, on the science side a little bit. Um, so that, that was dealing with some work that you're involved in that that's looking at the age that goats are becoming like a reproductive age. Maybe 
kind of tell right. us a little bit about what's happening there in that science? Okay, so as I mentioned, one of the surprises from the long-term mountain goat study courage was how late they started producing. Uh, over, uh, we're getting pretty close to 30 years of monitoring. I think we've had four females that had their first kid at three. Uh, more than half do not have their first kid until they're five or older. So you can imagine your female kid is born this year. She's not going to start contributing to the population until four or five years later. So that gives a very slow uh, growth rate. And talking about this with biologists uh, from British Columbia, people like, you know, Garth Bowat and, uh, and others, they kind of said, well, you know, maybe courage has got an extreme slow population dynamics. And one thing that they always pointed out was uh, we think our ghosts are reproducing sooner. So because at courage we can, we typically catch these goats multiple times over their lifetime, and we measure the annual life, so how much uh, mountain goats are like bighorn sheep, the horns stop growing in the winter, so you get an adult mountain goat, either you live caught it or it's been shot, and you can measure how much they grew, how much the horns grew in each year of the life uh, of that goat. Unfortunately, you cannot measure the first year because they don't form an annulus, but you can certainly measure how much they grew during the first two years and the third, fourth, or whatever. And there's this very clear pattern in females that the year that they start, the year they lactate, they produce the first kid, the horn growth slows down. So the ones that we knew mm. had produced a kid for the first time at age four, their horn increment from the summer when they first lactated was substantially shorter than females of the same age that had not lactated. And it was very clear there was a strong difference. So we used that discovery and applied it to uh, mountain goat female shot in British Columbia with the idea that if uh, that particular horn increment when they're three, when they're four, when they're five is less than the average, that is a sign that a female had a kid that year. So to believe the rest of the story, you have to believe that what we found at Courage, that lactation effort leads to a lower horn growth, applies to British Columbia. So the first surprise was that indeed we found strong evidence that in most of British Columbia, a substantial proportion of the females, somewhere between 20 and up to, I think, 50%, will have the first kid when they're three. So that's good news because that contributes to population growth. And the bad news that if you look at over time, and that is something that I really cannot stress enough how fantastic it is that wildlife biologists in British Columbia, for things like bacon sheep, mountain goat, stone sheep, when a hunter takes an animal, brings it in for compulsory registration, they measure the annual life. Because that means if somebody shows up with an eight or nine year old stone sheet, there's nine years of data there. And like in Alberta, they just measure the, well, they started measuring the annual life a few years ago, but up till then, they only measure the total length. And there's just so much information in that annual growth. It's like, you know, it's what people do, forests do with trees. You know, it's a good season, the horns grow yeah. more. And, uh, yeah. So evidence that they reproduce at three, but over time, in most of BC, except for the coastal range, fewer and fewer females show evidence of ever reproduced as three-year-olds. So more as four and even as five years and, and older, 
which suggests to me that there is something going on in the environment that is not good for mountain goats. And it's clearly not density dependence because if anything, numbers have gone down. So, uh, I mean, I don't remember the exact number, but in much of BC, there's been a decline by, you know, in the order of 15 to 30% fewer goats reproduced as a three-year-old. And it was interesting because initially when we submitted this to the journal, the reviewer said, well, what, what difference does it make? Uh, well, it makes a big difference because if your females are reproducing at three rather than at four or five, well, you got this big cohort of young females that are contributing to reproduction. So we did some simulation and uh, you can easily find a difference of one to 2% in annual growth rate if they reproduce for the first time at three as, as opposed to if they reproduce the first time at four or five. And it may not seem a whole lot, but we're talking about an animal that can barely sustain it, you know, a one to 2% harvest rate. So one to 2% difference, you know, in growth rate year after year, it actually makes quite a, quite a big difference. So that makes me think that, you know, we're talking about predation and harvest. There, there seems to be something else going on in the environment that may not be good for, uh, for huh. mountain goats. But again, you have to believe that we can tell from the horns when the female yep. reproduced. And I think we can, yep. but uh, it's based on observation of known individuals at, 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 uh, at the long-term study of Huh. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, are, are people building on, on that work? Like, is, is, are, are we digging into this a little bit, little bit more? Well... We just found out about this like literally this year uh, because there's something oh, called the Canadian, wow. okay, the Canadian Mountain. Is... Yeah, it's it's very, uh, yep. uh, that, that very paper just got, okay. just got accepted in the Canadian Zoology. It confirms what several wildlife biologists from BC had said that, you know, we think our goat population are growing faster than the one at Courage. And it goes back to what Jesse was saying, that there's some areas where we do take, you know, four or five percent a year and things seem to be okay. Um, it is worried that the age is going up, but you know it ties back to the fact that these you cannot talk about the BC or the Kootenai population of mountain goats. You're talking about a whole bunch of fairly small populations, and if over here you got a cougar that's killing five or six a year, well, it's going to completely different from across, you know, not that far from there where there is no predation. And uh, yep. so it, it can really, you know, this, this sort of essentially random things that can happen. Uh, you know, some of this population, a hunter goes up and shoots a three-year-old female, well, that can have a pretty big impact uh, over in the population growth that, uh, of, that, of that small bunch of goats, which is very good that in many jurisdictions, they have a double quota. So you can shoot five goats, but four have to be males. If three are females, well, we shut down the hunting season for a couple of years, and you pretty much have to go that way, which is maybe easy to do in places like, you know, southern BC, the Kootenays, where people have a strong sort of local knowledge. In some of these more remote area, well, like, it becomes a lot harder to uh, to tell what's going on. Huh. Well, no, that's uh, that's one that I'll definitely be following along on. That's that's kind of fascinating to. See but what's, but I think I think the, the, the point that. there too is there's um, there's something going on right when you're you know horn growth and you're seeing the age of you know first reproductive success increasing 
you know, something's changing in the environment, whether it's tied to climate change or whether it's K is actually changing through time. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, and then we see these little sparks where we have fire, we have habitat changes and go populations just go off. Right. I mean, it would have been really interesting to see, to have, to have you in, you know, in the, you know, in the Okanagan when, when the fire happened to see the response in the goat population. So, and I mean, like, like I said, this isn't just mountain goats in BC, like it's elk, mule deer, sheep, like it's, we're, we're seeing it across the spectrum and, you mm -hmm. know, predation plays a role and habitat. And so you can, you know, you can turn down the predation or you can turn up the food are kind of the two, you know, course metrics, but we've got, yeah. like, we have a, we, we have things going on here that seem to be happening across the landscape that is not just goats and it is not, you know, it's not just one species. It's kind of like this broad scale decline. It seems like it's happening. Yeah. And where we do have blips, where, where, where we see a response, where and, we see and... wildlife doing well is typically where we have fires often or fires in protected areas even better like fires inside of a provincial park or something like that some sort of habitat disturbance right um anyways that's it it yeah it's uh yeah it's here it it is it is interesting and and the the one that i i've always associated fire with um you know in these blips and these changes you're talking about jesse is is not necessarily like the structural change in the habitat from forced to open. It's in the quality, the nutritional value of the food that they're eating completely changes um, with fire. So they get this period of time afterwards where where they have, hot, you know, food that's got more pro, more crude protein, you know, like like it, it's better food. So. I, I'm thinking if there's responses sort of in basic biology things in wally populations, it's like because they're no longer eating popcorn and they got this like this these you know steak you know good good high quality food so things are changing biologically in them their biological clocks you know like whatever um, those those sorts of things and have those spin-off effects but as you guys know um, generally those after forest fires at least in the West those gains are actually pretty short short-lived you know in in the neighborhood of five to seven maybe less than 10 years um gain in the nutritional value but there's, of, of food and and if any of these populations there's also there's another piece too that's that's things. probably pretty trivial and i don't know yeah, how much you've you've seen it at caw ridge but in, in the coonies especially when you know where the goats where their licks are they travel like 10 or more kilometers from the alpine down into the forest into what would have been open forest mm. at one point and when you see the trails the trails are like six feet wide and there's goat hair there from years and years and years ago but a lot of it is ndt4 it should have all been open forest where the goats could you know i think with a far more reasonable expectation of surviving make it down to a lick and get back and now when you walk through it i mean it's completely crowded out like you can't see it's like walking in a tunnel now, a bunch of those trails. And there's all kinds of licks in the East Kootenays, and we have some in the Okanagan, where, you know, you, you look around, you see white hair, and you're nowhere near the Alpine. And it's like, okay, this trail has been used for hundreds of years, and this is going to get me to a lick that the goats are going to use in the summertime. And when you look at the old aerial photos um, from the turn of the century, 
that was all open forest and now it's completely choked out and i mean it's you know they only do that a couple times a year and that you know in the spring or early summer but again that adds to this predation risk um, and maybe the landscape of fear. I mean, definitely as a as a predator that likes to, or a prey species that likes to see things coming, you travel through a really enclosed forest. Um, I mean, that's gonna that that's gonna upset any animal that wants to see its predator coming. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, things like grizzly bears and cougars. You know, obviously, dense you know, dense forest waiting by a big trail is going to greatly, greatly improve their chances of grabbing a goat as they go by. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, lots of little pieces to try to understand. Wow. Um, Jesse, maybe, maybe let's dive a little bit into kind of on the hunting harvest management side of things. Um, maybe walk us through a little bit, um, how, how harvest management four mountain goats yeah so uh, in, in BC uh, I think, uh, marco is up to speed i mean it's essentially a sliding scale as you know we've got it it's a you know it's a cut and paste basically but as the population gets bigger you're able to increase the harvest rate and if the female harvest uh, increases depending on the size of the population then you start trimming the harvest back um, as as marco said the proportion of nanny harvest has gone down over time um but it's still not great. It's it's higher than I would have liked to have seen it. Um, it looks like uh, I've got, oh, resident. The nanny harvest is, yeah, it, it's varied over time. But right now it looks like about half of the nanny harvest or 56% is by residents. And that means about 46% is by, 44% uh, is by non-residents. Um, the resident component of female harvest ratio is now probably around 20%, and the non-resident is around 14. So uh, we could do better, I guess, is the thing. And uh, what Marco's saying around harvest of females, like they do in the states, would wow. be, you know, to to have sort of a better way to incentivize hunters to harvest males only, right? And so there's a carrot and a stick approach to that. But I think that's what we need to start turning our minds to. And of course, we have bighorn sheep in region four, um, breathing down our throat on a similar vein around age of harvest. So I think we need to start having that conversation here in BC to help improve those, uh, the female component of the harvest. Yeah. Now, this is where inventory becomes really important, right? Because your base that you're you're allocating um, like numbers of permits is based on your population estimate. And, and you've probably seen this. I've looked at some of the Excel spreadsheets and it's like, oh, go population in management unit one, two, three. And you can just see that the cells in the Excel table have been just like drug over for the last like eight years because nobody's counted them since, you know, 2013 or something. So they're just kind of like, sliding that that same number across this the spreadsheet until they survey it and then all of a sudden like it's gone up or it's gone down but in that whole time frame you know um the numbers of authorizations that are issued are based on this this number that's may, may not be anywhere near near reality i mean how do you think that's a 
a big problem across the province? Like just yeah, the lack yeah. of that. We can solid rant baseline? about funding and the our the inability to do science in BC and the fact that we're probably the 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 worst off jurisdiction in North America in terms of funding <laughs> for fish and wildlife management and more on that in the new year. But um, I, it, it's really interesting when you look at the inventory reports. And like I said, this is the challenge: is, is areas that are really remote. Um, where where we don't have a lot of hunting pressure, we just assume that that's okay. And we typically favor areas that see a lot of hunting pressure uh, in terms of doing inventory. So we have these big gaps of 10, 15, 20 years before we do inventory. And then all of a sudden we go out and there's no goats or the goats have declined by 50% or 60%. And now all of a sudden we need to close the season. We don't know what the cause all mechanism was. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, this ties back to the Together for Wildlife and the Minister's Advisory Wildlife Council. You, you have to go out and count things to know what's out there so that you can have sustainable hunting. I mean, that's the point. And I do hear regularly, we don't need more money um, and goats, contradict that regularly uh goats are telling us that we need to be out every five years at least counting our goat populations to understand what's going on you just can't afford not to do that yeah yeah um and that's that's that story can be echoed across so many so many species in the province that you've spoke to and you know you're working on on a on a day-to-day -day basis when i was <clears throat> maybe explain this a little bit if this is something you're concerned about when when i was looking into understanding how the mountain goat tags let's just say that are are issued for uh, a management unit in the province so there's um, a management unit, an estimate of the number of goats, a harvest rate, which is usually like 3%. Um, for most, some of them are 2 and 1% of the populations are very small. Then it says, okay, based on that, there's X number of permits that could, could be issued. Then they look at, or X number of goats that could be killed. Then they look at the success of the hunters. And like Marco said earlier, if the hunter success is only 50%, they got to give out more tags in order to only, you know, get, get three goats or whatever. Um, so then they issue more tags than they actually want to kill. But there's this other thing, a line item for each management unit called the range of authorizations, which as I understand that is no matter what's happening with the go population or hunter success, the number of tags that you issue always need to be between this many and this many. And that could potentially be a significant issue for conservation if you say we need to like really lower that number and go below the low range of the range of authorizations, but that becomes like a uh, an issue for a wildlife manager to issue authorizations that are lower than the range of authorizations is am i getting this the, the, right like is this an issue yeah the the, the range of authorizations can harvest. be adjusted that's relatively easy to do it's closing a season and opening a season that's really okay. hard so they can okay. totally adjust the range of authorization but what you, you're the prelude what you're getting at before is this perception of risk 
and and what is risky and what's not and so yeah we have really low demand hunts that are still on limited entry where the number of people that subscribe to the hunt is really low and then the number of people that actually go quite often will only be let's say um, if we issue 10 tags for an area that has really low demand of those 10 draw holders only four of them will buy a license and actually go hunting right and so when we talk about even some sheep hunts like up in spats easy we'll issue 100 lehs and maybe only 20 of those people will actually buy a hunting license and go and so that that's really that is really about risk management and i know there's uh some people that get really spooked about that um but i guess we got to refer back to the data and go okay we released this many tags did we end up in a huge over harvest and i think the important thing too for goats and other species is that it's about time. Um, I think with some of these really small goat populations, yes, if you go from one goat harvested to two, that could be the difference. But by and large, like let's worry about a three-year harvest period because goat population, goat harvest really balances up and down. And when you look at some of these populations, um, even in the Kootenays that Bobby burns, I mean, harvest rate in the 90s was really high. Goat population was stable. 2013 to 2020 we harvest a handful of goats and the goat population declines by like whatever 50 percent so so i guess really that's about risk tolerance and if hunters want to go in the direction of we need to reduce the number of lehs well then you have to find mechanisms to make sure that the people that get tags in their hands actually are going to go hunting and so you can incentivize hunters to do that or you can provide disincentives right. so so this perception of risk is an ongoing issue um, and there's ways to mitigate it. It's just, you know, how much risk are you willing to take and how much do you want to try to deal with it on the front end? Yeah, yeah. Huh, interesting. So um, I can maybe add something to that because the same absolutely. student was done go, the work. Go ahead, uh, please. Yeah. The same student was done the work on age of uh, first reproduction. Chad Rice is now looking at the number of these management issues. And one is comparing LEH with general open season. And first of all, it's not easy to do because typically when a goat area goes to LEH, it tends to be subdivided into a smaller unit. But the basic idea was, you know, what happens when, you know, up to last year, anybody could buy a license. Now suddenly it's a restricted number of licenses. And from what we can tell, the impact on how many goats, how many goats are shot is tiny uh, maybe because the success rate goes up some people are saying well if it goes leh people are keen to go hunt in that area because they think there's more goats but uh, the impact of changing the regulation on how many goats are getting shot is not that strong i don't think that mm -hmm. the harvest is a big problem in bc overall it's generally you know i don't think that's why there's uh declines in some places i mean if it might be in some areas. Again, there's a lot of stochasticity in it. Uh, but what was even more surprising is that there is a few areas that went from LEH back to general open season and that barely, barely had an impact. Uh, again, it's not something easy to tell because sometimes the area, you know, and you have to, but there isn't, you know, uh, you know a 50% increase or a 50% decline. Um, I mean, LEH have other advantages. You know, you got, you're competing with fewer other hunters but impacts on how many goats are shot yeah. is yeah that's that's absolutely that i mean it's yeah, the the boogeyman well, that's, often that's comes out in these kind of conversations and quite often the data 
does not reflect what the boogeyman says. That's that's the reality. There are and 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 Marco's right. There are places <laughs> where it does and where it drives demand. And, but overall, I mean, really what goats are worried about is how many goats get shot. And so that's what we should be worried about as well, as opposed to, oh, my goodness, we like go 16 tags here. Right. I mean, the risk is there, um, but but quite often the evidence does not support, um, you know, the kind of the coffee shop talk for sure. Yeah, yeah. Huh, very interesting. And going back to the, you know, the male-female issue, I really wonder how many people, you know, will look for a billy, but especially if they know this may be the last goat license I get for the next five years, you know, in the last couple of days, will they take an annie just so they go home with something? I I don't know. Uh, again, it's very encouraging overall in BC, the proportion of females in the harvest has gone down over time but like jesse pointed out if you compare resident and non-resident the non-residents are doing quite a bit better so there is room for improvement but that's one of the social issues that i i i really have no idea what the answer is but i'm really interested in you know how many people would say well i want to go i can only see a female that's what i'll take i mean of course now there's that regulation that you cannot take a goat if there's kids in the group but then you really have to wonder you know who's out there checking yeah that that one's that that one is is pretty 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 tough to uh to enforce. enforce for for sure i mean there's another part of this with the nanny harvest and and maybe you guys know a, like a, a bit more about it like again not not all nannies are created equal as far as how they may or may not have an impact if if a hunter takes one for example, last year, right, Curtis? Yeah. Yeah. That, last October. So, so I had a goat draw last year, and we found a goat in a basin. The morning we got up of the tent, it was we spotted it again, and it was like really low on the base. And when I spotted it from the across the valley, like a couple of days before, it was way down in the bottom of the base and kind of in the tall, you know grass and the willows and all this sort of stuff and i was like oh that's kind of weird and then a couple of days later that's where we found it again and then being closer this time i you know put the spotting scope on it and watched it and it was a really old old nanny um winter was just starting to set in um she was wet looking the other goats that we saw that were still way high like had the had the Fabio thing going on, like the flowing hair, and it was all dry and fluffy looking. She was wet, so my assumption was she wasn't overly fat. She's losing body heat, and snow was melting on her, so she was a bit wet. She must have been severely affected by arthritis because um, she had trouble walking, and she was all by herself. So I figured she was probably just taking the chance because a grizzly bear could have run her down really easy, being down where food was a lot better and she was trying to trying to make it through the winter. So I I left her. I I didn't I didn't want to take her. I wanted a billy because I was hunting for meat. I didn't think that she was gonna provide high quality meat. Probably muscles were atrophied and stuff. But I I doubt she made the winter. Um, she may she may have, she's probably not you know, give, giving um, birth anymore. So 
had that been a nanny that was taken out of that population there, I, I would assume if 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 you knew her age and you know whether she was re, you know reproductively active or whatever, you could say that one counts or that one doesn't count towards this nanny harvest. But I don't think we're doing anything like that, are we? Are no. we sussing out age yeah. of nannies being harvested to say what portion of them are like like twelve year old nannies versus four year old nannies? So that's extremely difficult to do. And uh, the average age of a belly shot in BC, I think, is about five, and the average age of a nanny is about six. You're right. If it's an old female, there is no problem taking it. What is an old female in terms of reproduction for mountain goats? About 13, 14 years of age and older. After they get to be about nine, uh, survival starts declining. So like it happens with Bitcoin shape, it also with so many other species of ungulate, survival starts declining before reproduction declines. So for example, in Bitcoin shape use, survival starts going down when they're eight, but there's no effect on the reproduction until they're 13. And it's about the same for mountain goats. Which means that, yeah, it'd be fine if people took old nannies, but an old nanny is a 14-year-old. There's hardly any. Because even though they have high yeah. survival till they're nine, then it goes down. The proportion to make it to that age is, and you know, most hunters cannot tell a male from a female. Uh, I mean, I couldn't tell a fourteen-year-old nanny from a ten, from an eight-year-old. They, you know, the horns stop growing yeah. essentially after they're yeah. old. So yeah, that is an important issue. But it, uh, the number of hunters that be okay. able to make that judgment call is very small. And just the fact that she doesn't have a kid mm. doesn't mean anything because she could have one the next year. There was this interesting. Uh, experiments are with Shamo in the Alps uh, and I had a student who compared an area where there was very strong regulation against taking lactating nannies, uh, lactating females and so you know if the female has a kid you can't shoot it and another one where the regulation was more lax. What happened in the area where there was a really strong incentive against taking female mm-hmm. with a kid, mm-hmm. hunters were taking two-year-olds, two-year-old females. Well two-year-old females don't have reproduced yet but you've just taken out the worst possible animal that you would want to take out if you're looking at population growth, because you've taken out an animal that has made it almost to its first reproduction, and he's got his whole reproductive life in front of it. But the regulation says, you know, you shoot a female that is not accompanied by a kid. Well, that's what a two-year-old. So it gets fairly complicated. And with goats, I agree. If people took whole nannies, no problem. Uh, I, I think know, that's... How many people can recognize them? Can't. That's you really about tell. social. Yeah, no, change. I, what I, we're I, talking about, I mean, we're gonna we're having we're gonna start having this conversation with sheep hunting too. Is it's really about social change and making hunters aware that it, if you're unprepared to walk away from that nanny, that means it could impact your future hunting opportunity, and that future impact impacts all of us, right? And that's this is the issue with thinhorn sheep and bighorn sheep too. Is you know. Not, and not everybody knows. And so that's where, you know, organizations like BCWF can step in and start educating hunters to say, look, this isn't just about you today, that six-year-old or seven-year-old ram. If everybody goes out and does that this year, that means all of us in the future are not going to have that opportunity to go hunting. And so, I mean, it's really about this culture around what's, you know, what's good for wildlife first and then what's good for hunting second. And I think if we start to have that conversation and talk about the effects of nanny harvest, you'll see things slowly change over time. And I think that's really where 
um, the hunting community needs to spend its time and its focus is on educating people that have these tags and we can offer you know incentives and disincentives to manage that we can write rules but social change is really big in this world right and so if the hunting community decides hey it's not okay just to go out and shoot a nanny every single year or go up to northern bc and shoot a six or seven year old ram because it's legal then you'll start to see that change happen i think that's where we need to you know have the conversation start to focus our energy yeah yeah ab ab absolutely and and that's that's where i get concerned when the conversation starts coming up um about these these sort of disincentive penalizing type systems for for eligibility for for like another another goat tag like being if you harvest a nanny you're not eligible for five years or seven years or three years you know or, or whatever um I, I mean to to me there's two things if it's legal to take the animal and you take it and it's a nanny it's legal but then you're going to get penalized there's kind of a philosophical aspect about that you were driving your car at 100 kilometers an hour but you're still going to get uh, a ticket because we don't think you should be driving this the speed limit sort of thing um then to me that disincentive stuff could then backfire what we're talking about is marco said this earlier it's like you know I've only got three days to hunt a goat. Uh, I live in Calgary. This is the, you know, the closest one. Um, you know, I might not get another draw, you know, or, or, or whatever. And, and you, you know, you get these, these disincentives with, you know, with your incentives. And I don't know what you guys think, but I, I do worry a little bit about like going to that, that penalty type type system. I would rather see us focus on, um, even like, intensive training you know for people that draw um the goat goat permits uh, it might be hard to sell a certification for mountain goat hunting in british columbia kind of i know government doesn't like to like add you know um stuff on but in the dakota i think north dakota there's that area where they have the bison permits a couple of units there and they're harvest is super sensitive to females like they want zero females taken like literally if one person shoots a cow it's like that's it for like everybody for the next five years or something like that um so all of these hunters that get drawn a tag um have to go through and pass a course so that it increases the certainty around the fact that they've been trained and demonstrated that they they're able to differentiate a bull there's a, there's a number of jurisdictions that have that have mandatory courses around? Um, around certain species. And I think, you know, the, the issue and Marco's research is illustrated really well. And I'm, you know, especially with thin horn sheep is harvest under eight. And so the trade-off there is, you know, we, we need to try to reduce the less than eight harvests. And that, like I said, the trade-off there is if we don't move in that direction, we will get moved in that direction. And what that means is, is it will go to a draw. And we will manage based on a non-selective harvest. And the trade-off there, when you look at non-selective sheep hunts in BC, they're 70 to 1,500 to 1. So statistically, unless you start putting in, when you're 10 years old, you're never going to get that, that, that 
opportunity to go hunting and right now you can go hunting every year and so i think it's really important to keep that in mind is that you know what i'm hearing from the sheep hunting community is they still want to be able to go sheep hunting and so if they want to go be able to go sheep hunting every year then we need to find tools to address that and some of them are carrot and some of them are stick but we need to get to what works and you know we're not going to like it nobody likes change in that direction um, but I feel like we need to start having a conversation and start moving hunters there. And, you know, ideally what we would do is we would do what Marco does with sheep and, and goats is we would look at the life history of hunters and we would be able to find out how old they were, when they started hunting, which region they're from and what they're shooting, who's shooting illegal rams, you know, interview them, find out what their background is so that we can close all of those loops but I don't think that the government has a proper database for us to track all of that. So we're kind of, you know, so it's funny. So we have a hundred plus thousand people that buy licenses every year, but meanwhile we have better data on um, 50 or a hundred mountain goats on Caw Ridge than we do on a hundred thousand hunters. And it's very rare that the world of, the world of animal ecology does better than social sciences. Um, but for sheep and goats, it seems like it does. <laughs> no, I, I agree uh, with that. And, you know, I don't want to steer the conversation to sheep because that's a different kind of worms. But one thing that I, again, we all pointed out, things are getting better. The proportion of females in the harvest in BC has gone from close to 50% to about 20%. So it's a whole lot better than it was. And I agree that we need to know more about what hunters want. But I think we need to promote a culture that, you know, these are not white-tailed deer. It's a privilege that you're allowed to go hunting mountain ungulates. Most of the time, you will not get one. You should get into a frame of mind that you will shoot, you know, maybe two over your lifetime. And that's, I know some people are really like that, but, you know, I really wonder, you know, people pass up a five-year-old ram or a female mountain goat, you know, if the next guy is just going to shoot it, well, then that comes into the play. Uh, but again, let's stress the fact that things are getting better. You know, the proportion of females in the harvest of mountain goats is way lower than it used to be, and it seems to be getting smaller every mm. year. Even though, you know, um, and that must mean that there's people who have the choice, the chance of taking a female and then decide not to. Because even though there's regulations that say you cannot take one in a group with kids, you know, I really wonder a hunter shows up with a lactating nanny and you know, who's going to even charge it? You know, how's that going to stand up in court? You know, I mean, Mr. Judge, I saw this one solitary go. Uh, yeah. yeah there, I mean, there's that. So people are having that opportunity. Like two days yeah. before. Well, they're having yeah. that opportunity and they're not because the proportion of females in the harvest is, it continues to decline. Yeah. Now, part, part of this, like, culture and and the the education component uh that like we're sort of talking about like directed at hunters for mountain goats i see that the science behind the sustainable harvest of focusing on mature billies a tremendous amount of the conversation needs to be directed at the non-hunting public because you're all very aware of the trophy hunting sentiment that's out there and all of the pushback against 
hunters that want the biggest bodies, the biggest antlers, the big males, social status signaling, all, all these prowess things that come with the killing the big males. Uh, and then, you know, the impacts to genetics and, you know, and all that stuff that sort of flows out of the, out of the, the trophy hunting debate from a sustainable goat harvest perspective and the future of hunting, uh, mountain goats, even if you're like me up there still looking for just meat, uh, you know, from mountain goat, everything about this says to the non-hunting public, it's just a trophy hunt. You're, you're just narrowing in on these big old mature billies and, and, and it's all cause you want to feel big and everything. So, so there's in this day and age, I really feel like the time's coming where we're going to really get caught in this conversation about how we hunt mountain goats. Grizzly bears were the same way, right? Focused on the big old males and, and it, it spun off the whole trophy hunting thing and, you know, and people paying $30,000 to come and, and get one or whatever. And I, yeah, I just truly worry about that in the mountain goat world, like for the future of hunting. I don't know. What do you think? Well, if I can go first, I worry less about mountain goats and many other species. I worry a lot about that with, they okay. call with mountain sheep, but with goats, uh, there's a number of biological characteristics that it's not really a trophy hunt. I mean, I agree with you, people can sell, you know, anti-hunting types can sell as a trophy hunt and they do and we have all this problem you pointed out. But there isn't the same sort of trophy mystique. And again, I go back to, you know, mine is bigger than yours, that there is with sheep. Because the size of the billy horn, you know, it, it's not that variable. One thing that was, to me, a surprise from looking at the harvest record in British Columbia, first of all, there's very little regional variability. Uh, there's a tiny bit, but hmm. not, you know, they're about the same. By the time a male is five years old, the horns are done. Because what happens is that the small amount of growth at the base is compensated by the wear at the tip. So that we got, you know, we got these animals that we call repeatedly and after about maybe not five years, but let's say six or seven, it essentially plateaus because, well, because the, the base, you know, grows so little that it, it wears out. And the other key issue when you were talking about genetics, size of the horns is not what drives mating success in mountain goats. The belly that is a successful belly has to be big. So it's body size. So the hunter that takes a large horned ram when that ram is four has removed a very promising breeder from the population. But if they look at horn size in mountain goats, the correlation, by the time they're about four or five, the correlation with body size, sorry, horn size, the correlation with body size is almost none. So there isn't that kind of selective impact that there could be a big horn shape. I mean, a surprise looking at the data from BC is that, like we find with sheep, but not as strongly, if the horns grow quickly in early age, so if that belly had put on a lot of growth when he was, you know, one to three, they get shot when they're younger. And I wasn't expecting that because the regulations don't force you to take a minimum size horns, but, and it's not a strong effect, but clearly um, it's there. But even with that, 
you're not necessarily removing the best producer if you go after the ones with the large horns. And the hunters, I don't think they can judge body size because unless you got two buildings one after you know next to each other, you know how do you tell one that's 110 kilo from one that's 130? Well, you you can't. They look at where the horns go in relation to the ears and. Uh, and we know this because mountain goats are one of the few species that we actually have data on paternity. We know who the fathers or the kids are at, at uh, core edge. And again, it's not horn size, it's uh, body mass that drives it. So I'm not worried about these genetic effects mm. in mountain goats. It's a completely different conversation with sheep. And I don't really see it as a, as a trophy in the sense, you know, mine is bigger than yours. I, I see it as something with a strong sort of social culture value because, you know, I shot this thing after I walked for three days in the mountains and I took it way up high and it was a pain in the ass to walk, you know, to pack it out. And that's to me what makes the value of a hunt. How it's portrayed in the media, well, it, it could be different, but I, I don't really see goats as a trophy hunt. It's a fantastic opportunity to go and hunt a mountain angulate in an environment that is where it's very difficult to hunt but that's how i see it yeah. other people yeah. see it different but you know the, this business oh, we the, still got a record book and there's still somebody out there yeah. that's number yeah. one and, number two yeah. number three even and, though the differences between first and last yeah. place like you said is and, is, is pretty small that people and still we need to get count. rid of that and we really and yeah. that that i think we are all agreeing that is that is bad is I mean, it's stupid and yeah. it's very bad in an era, in a situation where, you know, most people are not hunters and they see that and they say, well, this is, you know, I don't like this, uh, but it's yeah. not, it's a completely different situation from mountain sheep. Huh. Very interesting. Um, Jesse, your, your thoughts, um, are, are we at risk of the conversation about sustainable mountain goat harvest and goat conservation kind of getting derailed socially as a, as a trophy hunt where we we're going to lose the nuance of the things we've been talking about. And it's just, people are going to be just saying targeting. Yeah. I think males. Marco is right. And it's really interesting. Even when you bring up grizzly bears, when you look at the mean age of harvest for grizzly bears, I think it was five point something years old for resident hunters and six point something years old for non-residents. Like, I mean, in the world of grizzly bears, essentially, you know, kind of like in their teens, right? These aren't, yeah, these are not 20-year-old bears. I think the, yeah. you know, the hunting community kind of faltered on a number of things. Social media, I would say, is the biggest challenge, right? Is, you know, non-hunters not understanding how hunters communicate and talk about hunting. And so being mindful of that when you put stuff on social media, I think is the really the missing piece um, because we define ourselves in that in that construct and when we do a poor job on social media then other people define us um, I, I think that's the biggest challenge is you know if you lead by example and you say here's what hunting means to me here's what I do and you put out your story then people are very accepting of it when you just put a picture of an animal out they, they don't understand like the non-hunting public does not understand what that means that do, they do not understand what the attachment is all they see is a dead animal and a person standing beside it and then you get defined by other people so i mean i think that's the big challenge is you know thinking about this mm -hmm. and thinking about how people that don't hunt or fish see you as a hunter because you know it's always been it's always been 
bizarre to me that we get all of this flack when, you know, I could put stuff on my social media and I don't get any grief. Like I just don't, I don't get that. I don't have that kind of engagement, but other people put pictures holding up wolves or we're going to take out the whole pack or whatever it might be. And yeah, you're going to, you're going to cause some trouble for yourself. Right. And then, and then I'm going to have to get called by the media to deal with it, which I don't like dealing, you know, I don't really like defending that part of hunting. And, and sometimes I don't, sometimes I just say that doesn't represent hunters period. But I think that's really the big, the important piece is that hunters need to start defining and right, telling their own story, but telling it, thinking about it in a way that, Hey, I'm talking to all of these people who make up 95% of the population that don't hunt. And I have to explain to them why I hunt, why I enjoy hunting, why it's a family activity, you know, all those sorts of things that you get out of it. I think that's the piece. And if we lead by example, um, then, yep. you know, then we have social license, but if we sit back and just put pictures out on social media that are unrelatable to the non-hunting public, we're in big trouble for sure. Totally. And, and, and I think that's a good opportunity to take what we've been talking about here about the science behind a sustainable mountain goat harvest. And if you are the type that's, you know, putting your picture of your mountain goat that you got, take that opportunity to to tell that story about why that's the animal that you chose because of sustainable management of goats and and hunting harvest like you use that opportunity because you're probably going to have more people looking at your picture that are not hunters than are hunters so so it's an audience you know like um, it's not a difficult concept, I don't think, with the mountain yeah. goats. Um, Mark, but you know, I think... Maybe you were... Go ahead. No, I was just saying, you know, I sort of agree with what you're saying, but the reality is don't put out pictures with it anymore because it's just never going to work. And it's going to be picked up, and, you know. Yeah. Put a picture of your camp or the scenery, things you did, talk about it. Don't put the dead animal. Yeah, it just—that—that's definitely the trigger point. Um, people are still doing it, um, yeah. so I'm just kind of like, if you are. I mean, I find that offensive. You know, I—it's the kind of stuff you share with your friends. Yep. But if you put on social media, you're boasting, and you're boasting you killed something, and you just shouldn't be doing we that. We got—I got a million friends worldwide. <laughs> Um, what's your definition of friend <laughs> I think it's I think it is interesting because yeah. in the world um, of fish I think about this a lot and uh, obviously I've spent time on researching the hunters not the public mm -hmm. as much but people post pictures of fish all the time and that's completely acceptable I would say and so there's a there's a difference there and I, I don't know what it is no. yeah it's yeah. more acceptable yeah, but, but there's right. a piece there yeah. where people go yeah great fish no, blah blah I, I blah and and so, so I'm not, there is a bit of a disconnect there and I'm not yeah. sure what it is. Yeah. And I, I do feel like, you know, on our social media, yeah. um, sometimes we put pictures of animals on there or when we're butchering it or whatever. And, um, we don't, yeah, I just don't take the flack that I see on social media that other hunters, you know, stir up by basically putting kind of careless or reckless posts or posts that even that are unrelatable to me. But see. Goats are a bad Jesse, one. you started an excellent series on social media. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say, Jesse started this excellent series on 
Twitter about his cooking. Product. Yes. Yeah. And he puts pictures of food. And that's fine. It's when you put a picture of a dead moose with somebody obviously very happy that he's killed the moose that that that's what has the the negative impact. Yeah, no, it definitely um, gets some people. But you're right. The thing with fish is weird. It's just like, you know, people hope it's changing now, but it used to be in all along ago that people found the lake without right. fish. Oh, this is bad. We got to put in trout. You know, nobody, <laughs> nobody walks into a meadow and say, oh, there's no, there is no rabbits here. Let's put some rabbits. But, you know, fish, somehow we have a different attitude, which again brings in the importance of uh, social science, understanding where do these patterns come from? Why, why is it that in Australia nobody blinks when they kill millions of feral pig, feral goats, mm -hmm. but you mm -hmm. shoot two feral horses and everybody's up in arms. Oh, well, Dr. Brooke has got horses his... horses are not the same category as pigs. Dr. Brooke's got his group in Saskatchewan that wants to save the wild, feral, invasive pig. They're against any any calling. <laughs> um, yeah, but pri yeah, okay, sure. But compared to horses, yeah, no, I, I, wild horses yeah. in Alberta. It, yeah, Will, Willie Nelson's uh, not advocating for the wild pig in Canada, that's for sure. <laughs> um, hey, guys, uh, just, just kind of... One thing I want to get your last thoughts on, um, out of everything that you've kind of like put out here about mountain goat, mountain goats, mountain goat conservation, hunting, where do you think our priorities lie for the future, um, for mountain goat conservation? Let's put it this way. It's not a hunting thing. It goats have to be there in order for the hunting opportunity to be there. So from a conservation perspective, what what do you what do you think our priorities are anywhere within mountain goat range north america marco okay do i, I go first um we need to know more about the impacts of climate okay. change i suspect it's a threat but we really don't know and it's coming so we need to be prepared we need to know more about as we touched upon goats in the alpine in the Spazizio and in the Skin are not the same as goats in the rainforest and coastal BC and goats that appear to be dependent on maybe burnt area in uh, along the Rocky Mountain Trench. So differences in habitat that affect population dynamics. The other underlying issue is that unfortunately there's more and more evidence that they are getting some of the diseases that are affecting bighorn sheep. Okay. So we need to have more, you know, disease is a potential uh, threat that it's not been a big issue, but maybe it's not been a big issue because we haven't been looking into it. So those are the three things that I, you know, diversity over the range, climate change, and potential impacts of disease. Okay. Jesse, uh, I, I'm going to fly in my usual or at, at a different altitude, I would say. Um, I mean, this, this comes back to funding and, you know, goats are one piece of the puzzle. And if we don't, you know, get on with having a dedicated, properly funded, fish and wildlife agency or management structure i mean we we have nothing really um and it's great that that marco has all this phenomenal work in alberta on on both bighorns and on goats um but our ability to implement and to use that science is very limited i mean even in the case of goats in the states i would imagine they're probably going out and doing inventory annually or biannually on goats and we have populations that we probably haven't done for 15 or 20 years, right? So you you can't you can't manage something if you don't know what's out there. 
Um, and then and then the second piece of that is around the science and the restoration piece is counting stuff doesn't make more stuff. So first of all, you have to figure out what you have. You need to establish where you want to go, and then you need to get there. And and we just don't, you know, none of those building blocks are in place in BC. So um, that's just not, that isn't just mountain goats. That's just wildlife generally in our province, I think. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that's why so much of the work that you do, you know, at the Federation, uh, you're talking this big picture stuff, uh, this big framework, the funding piece, that's, it's, it's got to start at that high level uh, and then get us down to the individual species, the individual regions, the individual questions that we need some research to solve and that sort of thing. But if you don't start at that, at that top, um, we're going nowhere with everything. <laughs> you know, it's not like one animal is going to shake out of, out of a chaotic system and do really well. Uh, I think you said it earlier, even mountain goats, you know, are kind of suffering some of the same broad trends uh, that other species are. So there's some big mechanisms going on. So some big, big solutions that need to be put in place first. So appreciate all the work you're doing on that front. Cool. Well, guys, thanks for uh, taking a deep dive into mountain goats. I learned a lot. It's cool. I love them. Me three. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about mountain goats, mountain, like hunting mountain goats, uh, I'm not quite sure if it's mountain goats or bears, but I've always found, and I, I, I'll, I'll lean towards mountain goats, when I'm hunting mountain goats, they are an animal that will be in my spotting scope or my binoculars for the most number of hours in the day while I'm hunting. Like elk, deer, whatever. Sometimes a deer, it's like, oh my God, there's a big buck. Oh, it's, that's it. That's the first and only time you ever saw it was this fleeting, mm -hmm. oh my God, that was a, that was a nice buck. Um, but it always seems like mountain goats and I think it's peaceful. It can literally plunk down and not move for eight hours and just watch the same animals sleep for four hours, get up and feed and do this. And those things that you were talking about, Marco, those little nuanced things of their social structure and the behavior of one making the other one get up and taking its bed and stuff. It's like, I think because they live in these alpine tundra environments, at least like where, where we hunt them, is you just get a lot of eyes on goats and um, and that's pretty that's a pretty cool part of what, it, what I like about um, interacting with goats through hunting so thanks again for all your knowledge curtis wrap us up cool so after all this uh fantastic information about goats if you want to go out and see a goat go down and talk to the folks at alpine toyota they might be able to rig your truck up with all the gear to <laughs> get way high up some of them back roads to get up where you can see them probably not get right to them that'd be pretty intense but uh yeah the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by alpine toyota in cranbrook bc go check them out like we say all the time big supporters of ducks unlimited conservation in canada big supporters of us so we appreciate it go check them out if you go in there say hi say you heard about them on the hunter conservationist podcast and maybe get chatting about some duck hunting or conservation or just general outdoor adventure. So thanks to the folks at Alpine Absolutely. Toyota. Thanks, Alpine. Um, 
Last little um, plug. Um, so <clears throat> the fundraising campaign um, that we have partnered with the BC Wildlife Federation on um, to help bring Tom home, Tom Leonard, the hunter who over 16 years ago disappeared without a trace in Spatsy Wilderness area. Um, you probably know about our effort to get you to help the Leonard family who is self-funding to continue on the search to try to find what they believe was Tom's camp in a valley of Spatsy Wilderness area. Um, they're trying to raise money to send volunteer search and rescues in. They got to go in by helicopters and stuff. Um, so we're trying to help them raise money. The BC Wildlife Federation has sponsored uh, a giveaway of a Spot X satellite communicator. So that contest uh, giveaway is open till the 15th. Uh, all of the details will be in the show notes. You can go to our YouTube channel or 15th yeah, of January anything, um, on our social media. Uh, basically, go on to the GoFundMe um, webpage, look for, search for Tammy Leonard. Uh, you'll find the family's page, make a donation, and then send us confirmation at hcmedia at thehunterconservationist.com. We'll put your name in for the Spot X, and that's open till the 15th of January. And um, yeah, hopefully your contributions, even if they're small, uh, will help Search and Rescue find what happened to Tom and bring closure to a family. So please take the time before the 15th. If you're listening to this on the 1st, you'll still have time on the fifth before the 15th to make a donation. All right, everybody, uh, we will see you in the next episode.